As was mentioned previously, how delightful we each can certainly feel that God has blessed us with the temperament, the disposition, the capability to assemble this morning. And how thankful we are on this first Sunday of 2013 that we can spend this first day of the week in a way that's in accordance to the teaching and the wonderful blessings of the New Testament. As we close the year 2012 and made some statements last Lord's Day about those matters ending that year and this one today that begins this year, at least on our Sunday assemblies, it is certainly something that allows us to imagine what the coming year shall be and to think about the nature and the character of serving the Lord in this year, in this place here at Pippin. We're so thankful that you've come to be with us today, our membership, our visitors alike, and we hope that each of us can truly feel edified, built up, and enriched in the things according to the knowledge of the Word of God. You may have noted the lesson text this morning taken from 2 Kings 6. In light of that and the topic that I've listed on the wall, that may seem like an odd combination. The Christian life, the book of 2 Kings, but I hope as we give some thought to that this morning that that really will become a bit clearer in terms of its association. In Philippians 4, verse number 4, we have the following rather profound and very powerful statement. The Apostle Paul, as he penned that particular statement, remember he himself was in prison and he himself was in a rather dire set of circumstances and yet he said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And immediately we have before us this encouragement to rejoice. The actual Greek text in which that's found highlights it as being an imperative matter. In other words, it's a command. In other words, it is not something that might be taken or left. You and I as Christians are admonished to be a rejoicing people, to be happy, to appreciate the nature of what comes with all the blessings in Christ. It is true, as you can see on that slide, that encouragement on one hand is easy to note. But we each are very well aware of the matters in life. Sickness might come your way or mine. Tragedies associated with loss of loved ones, other circumstances on the job, in the community, in the family or otherwise. And suddenly we can find it much more difficult to rejoice, can't we? I'm sure we've all been there at one time or another and maybe many times. It is true, though, that even beyond that, it seems as if there are some Christians, and maybe you've known some throughout the course of your life, who seem to find happiness a very difficult thing. They're always frown. They never seem happy. They're always desiring for the greener pasture somewhere else. So much so that that particular slide seems to identify them as negative, pessimistic, and sad. I would hope this morning over the next few moments as we study some interesting features in the Word of God that you and I will be encouraged to think about a life that's positive, a life that's optimistic, a life that is so because not of you and me and our capabilities, but because of the one whom we love and the one whom we serve and the one who has made promises to usward. When we think about the nature of some of those promises, and the characteristic of what the wonderful Word of God says about some of that, I hope we'll each be able to appreciate that there's a whole world of opportunity resting before us, not just this day, but yea, almost any day, the positive Christian life. 
I would invite us to think about that text of the Old Testament for the first section of the lesson and then to use all the remaining time to extract some considerations for us today. So historically, let's paint a picture corresponding to that text in 2 Kings 6. I've highlighted there some of the matters for your consideration, but let me tell it to you, or at least overview it in the following way. Jehoram, at this particular time, was reigning on the throne of Israel. He was the ninth of the Israelite kings, and quite frankly, during his days, things were a bit challenging. Although there were some reasonably good times, by and large, the days of Jehoram were known as hard days, difficult days, challenging days. Much of that is due, of course, to the lifestyle that he chose and the lifestyle the people of Israel chose. In fact, you'll notice that some of the things that came to be the case during his reign, things that brought challenges to Israel, were these. We read in 2 Kings 3 about the Moabites rebelling against Israel. For at least a while prior to that time, Israel had been such that they dominated over the Moabites and the Moabites paid tribute and the Moabites, in fact, did service. However, they became strong enough in chapter 3 to rebel against Israel and caused them hardship. In chapter 6, we notice that all that war broke out between Israel and Syria. And of course, war is never a pleasant thing in terms of life and the characteristics of it. Later in chapter 6, some other things, though, developed. We notice that as a result of that war with Syria, the Syrian army, in fact, encircled the city... And as such, they cut off all trade in and out. And so in the city of Samaria, look at what happened. Famine became the case. There simply wasn't enough food to eat because there was no travel in or out of the city. Because food was so scarce, that famine ultimately drove the people to even consider cannibalism. There's actually the story in 2 Kings 6 of a woman who boiled her own son and proceeded to eat him. That's how bad things got. You'll notice as a result of all of that, though, the hardship is seen in specific cases in terms of the scarcity of food. The head of a donkey sold for 80 pieces of silver because there was nothing else to eat. Dove's dung, a mere cup and a half of it sold, as you can well tell, for a number of pieces of silver. Can you imagine trying to make fire out of that? All of that tells us that these people were in dire circumstances. As you see near the bottom of that slide, there was a prophet of God laboring at this time, and his name was Elisha. Elisha, as the successor to Elijah, was a very bold and powerful spokesman for God. We notice something rather amazing. Elisha, due to his prophetical capabilities, was able, in fact, to know exactly what was happening in the enemy camp. The people of Syria were trying to, in fact, attack Israel. And everywhere the Syrians put their troops, Elisha already knew where they were. And he told the Israelite king not to go here, not to go there. And so the Syrians could never catch the Israelites. Needless to say, after a little while of that, the Syrian king began to think someone was committing treason. How is Israel always knowing where my troops are? Finally, someone told him, Elisha, the man of God, is telling them where our troops are. Elisha, as a prophet of God, knows exactly about our movements. 
at this point, the Syrian king had his idea. I'll put a stop to this. And so he made determination to go by night and capture Elisha. And Elisha, he knew, was in the city of Dothan. And so it was that by night, a large number of horses and chariots and troops came to Dothan and circled the city. And sure enough, when morning light came, we noticed some interesting features not the least of which are those matters pointed to near the bottom of that slide and the top of this one. When Elisha's servant arose in the morning, and he saw the troops, and he saw the chariots, and he saw the horses encircling the city, needless to say, he was concerned. So much so that he went and talked to his master. You'll notice in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Kings chapter 6, the servant said, Master, how shall we do? The servant was upset. The servant was bothered. The servant, you see, was very concerned, for here was a whole host of the enemy troops encircling the city, and he knew his life was at stake. Did you notice something, though, in Brother Cale's reading a moment ago? When Elisha responded to the concern of his servant, what did Elisha say? Did he appear concerned? Did he appear bothered? Did he appear agitated? He did not. You'll notice again in verse number 16, this is all, Elijah say, or all Elisha said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. But there were only two, I thought. Was it there just Elisha and his servant? There were only two, and there was a large host of the Syrians encircling the city. How could Elisha say that there's more with us than there are with them? You'll note the next verse goes on to say that Elisha prayed unto God that God would open the eyes of his servant. And God answered that prayer. When the servant's eyes were open and he were really able to see, as he looked about, he saw the mountains were full of chariots and horses of fire. Ultimately, as the next verses reveal, not only Elisha, but his servant were spared. The city was spared, and in fact, all turned out well. I would invite you, though, to think about an interesting conclusion to that, that I've tried to state on the previous slide. It turned two at once. My apologies for that. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, the valuable lesson that the servant needed to learn was this. Although what appeared to be just a mere two was in fact so much more because God was in the number. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. Elisha's servant needed to appreciate the fact very clearly about his master's master. What about the God of heaven? What about the case of his cause? And what about the nature of what that might say for you and for me as we begin the year 2013? May I submit to you near the bottom that that very matter is one that can so strongly contribute to sadness, pessimism, and negative thinking. When we fail to realize who our master is, and when we fail to understand that the great armies are all at his service and that we have every right to think positive. To say that positive is the way to go perhaps leads us back to these considerations that were on that slide you had seen just a moment ago. Remember, they that be with us 
are more than they that be with them. You and I too live in a day in which, although the population of this earth is now approximately 7 billion, and we know that so many choose not the things of God, so many choose not the matters of the Lord Jesus Christ and the issues surrounding the church, and so many times you and I on a daily basis find ourselves amidst a group of people that talk in ways they should not, they act in ways they should not, they do things they should not, and sometimes it's easy to begin to think negatively. However, 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. God is the victory, you see. And so long as you and I are able to serve, to in fact attach to the greatness of His being, we too can appreciate that victory comes our way as well. That verse that we just noted in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2, let's highlight just a moment two of the features in it. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. That phrase, triumph in Christ, means to be victorious in Christ. It means to enjoy the victor and all the things that go with it as being with Christ. The other thing to notice, though, so interestingly, is the adverb always. Paul did not say that we sometimes are victorious. We most of the time are victorious. Every now and then we're victorious. He said that in triumph we are always led so in Christ. I would think that that should allow you and me to appreciate the great positive character that comes with being a Christian. You and I have triumph in Jesus. In addition to that, you'll note this. Isn't it true that even as Paul addressed something that sounds at least similar to this Second Kings text, wasn't it true that in one of the greatest of the chapters in the Roman letter, Paul said, If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Is there any successful answer that you or, he, or I or anyone else can name to that question? As that chapter later goes forward, note with me the last few verses of that chapter. Verses 35 through 39. As Paul on that occasion would say, speaking about the victory that's ours, the triumph that's ours, the overwhelming joy that should be ours in Jesus. Paul stated in language like this. You might notice it again beginning in verse 35. As all of it is asserted, Paul had begun by noting the victory that's ours. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yea, as it is written, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are accounted more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That kind of anthem rings with such positive feeling, doesn't it? Such optimism. Nothing can separate you and me. No external power or force can do it. You and I can choose now to live waywardly. We can choose to live in sin, but no external force can separate us 
from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's one bedrock truth that in this year should be a great comfort to us. You'll also notice beyond that, that very confidence in life that comes from statements like that seemingly is found so often in the sacred pages of the Word. In Psalm 56 verse 11, the psalmist of old said, I will not fear what man can do unto me. Why? Because I put my trust in the Lord. Here was David, who so often had found himself on the wrong end, if you and I could say so, about a spear, about the other kinds of life. Many times Saul and others had had it in for David. And yet he could say, In God have I put my trust. I will not fear what man can do unto me. You'll notice 62 chapters later in Psalm 118, verse 6, there that same author, the same gentleman, was able to say, If God be on our side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Is God on your side? Is He on my side? May I submit to you that He's not on our side unless we're on His side. And that kind of association brings a degree of confidence, a degree of optimism, a degree of understanding that that which takes place is under the control of our Master, the one whom we adore and whom we serve, and we put our trust and confidence that He will take care of all these things. As the psalmist made those particular statements, what about the example of Job? In Job 13, verse number 15, Job on that occasion was already in the midst of such difficult circumstances, having lost his children, many of his possessions, having lost the nature and character of so much that he held dear, namely the degree of his health. And yet in the midst of that chapter, Job himself could say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job knew that the God of heaven was trustworthy. And he knew that so long as he placed his trust in Him, even the dire matters of life did not lead him to ultimate despair. Beyond the example of Job, what about the admonition that you and I have been given today? Found in the closing chapter of Ephesians chapter 6. We find there in verses 10 and 11 in specific character we are told, Be strong in the power of the Lord and in His mind. That strength should lead us to do what? That verse says, stand. That's optimism, isn't it? You and I have appreciated it by virtue of those whom we've watched and those otherwise that we know. When a person stands, he is strong. He is able to meet the onslaught of whatever the enemy may bring. He's strong. Paul said, therefore, stand. You and I as Christians can just stand against this world of evil and against the things that take place about us, recognizing that we are such that 2 Kings 6 perhaps answers it so well. More are they that be with us than they that be with them. You and I should then rejoice with an atmosphere of happiness and positiveness, with a thinking that's forward and not backward, understanding that perhaps that challenges us even in, to look at some of these promises. The promises, I would invite you to think with me just a moment. Isn't it true earlier that we did make note of the difficulties that life can bring? 
Thankfully, the Bible has some answer to those difficulties. Let us look in passing at some of them. Psalm 37 verse 25 seems an appropriate place to begin. The same gentleman, David, here was able to say, I have been young and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. David said, there is a time, and I've been young, and I'm also now rather aged, but I've never seen a time when the righteous have been forsaken. Or the time come when they have to beg bread. God, you see, seemingly in the Old Testament, even began to plant the seeds of promise to take care of those that are His children. And isn't it true that the Lord exactly stated that in Matthew chapter 6? You'll recall in verse 24, beginning a discussion point in that chapter, Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will cling or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It is at that point that Jesus began to describe the blessed state of those who are the servants of the Master. In fact, didn't He ask a very pointed question? He asked, what about those that ask, well, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? You see, there were those asking those questions that day too, weren't there? I have to make sure I'm clothed right. I have to make sure there's food to eat. But then Jesus went on to describe this. And we each remember it well. Let's start with that clothing. Jesus said, are you not aware of the lilies of the field? God clothes them. He takes perfectly care, good care of them. They are in fact completely provided for. And then he asked the question, aren't you much better than lilies of the field? Being immortal spirits, aren't you much more noble and much more worthy and valuable than grass of the field? And as far as food and drink, consider the birds. They don't toil, they don't spin, they don't in fact lay up in ways that you and I would imagine, and yet God takes care of them. Question, are you not much better than birds? If it's true that you and I are immortal spirits made in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.26 made in His full likeness, Genesis 5 verse 1, such that in fact the Son of God came to die that you and I might be saved. Doesn't that prove that God loves us? And doesn't it prove He values us? And doesn't it prove that He of course wishes for us to be saved eternally? We have a Heavenly Father that loves us and He's promised to provide for those that are His children. When you and I imagine the degree of that provision... Look at what that leads us to see in terms of those questions. We all know that we are in His sight more valuable than birds and more valuable than other animals and more valuable than grass of the field. No wonder Jesus then said in verse 33 of that chapter in conclusion, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Again, more are they that be with us than they that be with them. As you and I ponder and think a little bit more about that character, you'll notice that in verse 32, this interesting comment was made by the Master. He said that the Gentiles do worry about what to eat and what to wear and what to drink. 
it's in that very context you'll notice that that word Gentile was used to describe those who do not have proper direction in life, those who do not, in fact, live with complete reliance and trust and confidence on God. So maybe that says much about us. If we are living pessimistically, if we're living in a life that's a negative spirit kind of life, if we're living without rejoicing, maybe we really don't believe this and have not trusted it fully. What does that say about you and me this very morning? As we begin this year, this year 2013, may we appreciate the thorough set of promises found in this book and maybe Philippians 4.19 would be a good observation to make at this time. Here was again the same gentleman who earlier in that book had said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And now here Paul with such confidence could say, The God of heaven shall supply all your need through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is true that he didn't say he'll provide your wants, your desires, but your needs he will provide. Paul knew that God was aware of his needs and he knew that God would supply. When you and I appreciate the character of prayer and the observation of those needs, Maybe it helps us see that there is a strong message in all this, of course, for us. Philippians 4, 7 summarizes it like this. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a peace that comes with being a servant of the God of heaven. A peace that, quite frankly, the world doesn't appreciate because the world doesn't understand it. Peace based upon military things, economic things, or so forth is not a firm-setted, profound, and lasting peace. But the peace of God is. It is a peace of which the Savior could speak in John chapter 16, verse 33, as well as chapter 14, verse 27. Did Jesus say to those apostles, My peace I leave with you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Jesus could give peace, and those apostles learned to understand that. He also can provide the same for you, for me. Why? Because more are they that be with us than they that be with them. That peace also challenges us to notice that Elisha's servant became so agitated and so perturbed because of what he could see. Elisha, on the other hand, was very calm because of what he could see. He could see the chariots and the horses of fire that were ringing and encircling the Assyrian troops, and he knew that all was well. And so it is, when you and I can see what we should see through the eye of faith, we too will have a degree of calmness of spirit, an optimistic viewpoint recognizing that our Father is in control of it all. Sometimes those children's songs do have a great meaning in them, don't they? And sometimes the message is so very profound. He holds the whole world in His hands. That's a childlike trust, knowing that God will take care of His part. You and I, of course, have a response that we must take care of our own part. It is with that in mind that perhaps these thoughts we'll use to close this section of the lesson this morning. In Christ, you and I are admonished then to look forward not to look back. Paul could say in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, 
looking forward to that which lies before and forgetting that which is behind, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew very well that things hadn't been so good in the earlier days of his life in terms of his service to Jesus. But he said, forget what lies behind. I can't change that now. But I can begin to direct and construct a forward-thinking life based upon the truth of God. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so all of us are admonished in Hebrews 6 verse 1 to go on into perfection. In Luke 5, again, verses 1 and following, we're admonished to set out into the deep waters of deeper Christian faith and maturity. I hope that that's what lies in store for all of us in 2013. That we too will grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And appreciate that more are they that be with us than they that be with them. You'll also notice in one final thought, although the opposition to us, the chief one at least, is strong. He is called the strong man in Mark 3.27. But Jesus was quickly able to say, A stronger than the strong man is here. Speaking, of course, of Himself. Have you tied on to the strongest one of all? If so, then you know what confidence in life has come your way and you know what optimistic thinking has been yours. If, in light of all of that though, you've come to realize today that you're too sad, you don't rejoice even despite the fact you were once baptized into Christ, may I submit to you, think urgently and seriously about truly where have you put your faith? Are you too much thinking about what can be seen or what is not seen. We walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. With those things stated, the very last comment on that page is that there is a remarkable exhortation in the pages of the Word of God for you and me to live a positive life in Jesus. In summary, this lesson might be summarized like that. Just like that servant of Elisha recognized after the Lord opened his eyes that there was far more than what he initially could see. So too as Christians, those who've been bought by the blood of Christ, those who have placed your, their lives into consideration of His truth, we know all too well how powerful God is, but maybe we forget sometimes to live with trust on that truth. Why not, in fact, decide today to use 2013 as a way to recognize more are they that be with us than they that be with them? If you have not ever become a Christian, why do you wait? Why do you delay? At this point in life, the greatest strength of all, you are keeping at a distance from yourself. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 24. You need to repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 3. You're required to confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God and also to be baptized. And if we could be of assistance to you today, let me assure you that will be a transforming event for all eternity for you. You enter into that water, blackened in sin. You rise to walk a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It is a special, special moment. 
If you have become a Christian, though, but haven't been true and faithful to that calling, you've allowed negative, pessimistic thinking to be the order of the day, you have a sour disposition and you aren't happy in Christ, then realize that it's because you've made some poor choices. You have failed to look and see that more are they that be with you than there are that be with the world. Elisha's servant learned a valuable lesson. Won't you learn the same lesson today? And if we could pray in a public way for forgiveness of sins known publicly, why not come forward? Let us pray with you and for you. And if we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways today, won't you let that be known and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.